Good to be back with y'all guarding church. Uh, Pastor Joe mentioned the one son I have. I think the last time I was here with y'all, my wife was about eight and a half months pregnant. Uh, so last time I told you as I was getting ready to preach that I was putting the phone on the pulpit and if I just happened to get a text, I was going to have to jet. Uh, I don't know of any pregnancies as of, as of today, so I'm here to the end of service guaranteed. No, not planning to leave early. Um, I want to make sure I take the chance to publicly say to Pastor Joe, man, thank you for um, not just allowing us to be here together with y'all, but allowing us to come and serve. Um, y'all just thanked us for, for serving and, and, and doing the physical labor, but uh, as we hear of y'all's story about how you got the building and just see the, the work that God is doing through the Garden Church, there's no doubt about the fact that God is on the move, like he is at work through y'all's congregation. And so we're just glad to have gotten to come and, and be a part of that and, and to get involved in the work in a small way. If y'all would, open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2, Titus the second chapter. We're going to cover the, the whole chapter, Lord willing, this morning. I'm not sure if this is custom at Garden or not, but if you'd also join me, if you're able, in standing for the reading of God's Word, I would appreciate that. God's Word in Titus chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, writing to a mentee of his in the ministry, he tells him, but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, Encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works, Titus, with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach, so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust, and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This next verse is good, church. He says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession who are eager to do good works. Proclaim these things, Titus. Encourage and rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. This is God's word. You can take your seat if you're able. When I was getting ready to preach this passage, I read it for the first time, and one of the first things that came to mind was a comment that was made to me as I was preparing to go to seminary. The church that I was a part of, when the Lord kind of gave clarity about my my call to ministry and his aspirations that were growing in me, uh, they were commissioning me to seminary. Uh, and overall, it was an encouraging day. They had affirmed my aspirations for pastoral ministry. They prayed over me, and they were sending me to go and study God's Word in seminary. And so after they did all of this in the service, I kind of hung out down front, in front of the stage, uh, and, and naturally, everybody was coming up to give encouragement, 
Uh, they were letting me know they would be praying for me in the days ahead. And some people were asking for my address to send me gifts. Like most people had clearly understood that this was a good thing and it was an opportunity to give encouragement. But this one lady, uh, she didn't quite read the room right. <laughs> she didn't understand that it was a time for encouragement. She felt the need to instead give a warning and to kind of rain on this whole parade of encouragement. And so she walks up to me, and the first thing that comes out of her mouth, in kind of a wary tone, she says, you better be careful, because when you go to seminary, they turn that Bible into a textbook. Now, as I think back on that, I know that she didn't actually have any outright ill will in what she was saying. Like, she wasn't trying to rain on the parade. She was just, like, sharing her honest thoughts as everybody else was. But what she said has stuck with me ever since, because I think that her statement is an example of the way that many people think about studying the Bible. Uh, unfortunately, even Christians sometimes, I think we can sometimes wrongly assume that to study the Bible will somehow take away from living the Bible. Uh, we wrongly assume that studying the Bible is, is something completely different and separate from acting on the Bible. I think we can wrongly assume, friends, that studying the Bible for some reason is, is detached from growing to love the God of the Bible. We can make the, the, the false assumption that to study the Bible will, will fill our minds and make our heads big while leaving our hearts cold and our hands idle. And now this can be a temptation for some people. Like some people can get so caught up in studying the Bible as a book that they forget that it's a living book. Like they forget that it's a book that is, is alive and is meant to influence the, the way that its readers actually live. But I want to submit to you this morning, Garden Church, based on the authority of what the Apostle Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, that the reason we study the Bible is so we will live according to what it teaches. The reason we study the Bible, friends, is so that we would do the things that it lays out. And with that in mind, I want to preach from the thought, living the lessons. I want to talk to you this morning about living the lessons. Let's pray for God's help as we prepare to study his word. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for the kindness that you've shown to us in giving your word and in giving us the Holy Spirit so that when we read your word, we can not only understand and comprehend what it makes clear from a cognitive standpoint, but from a spiritual, heartfelt, soul-involved standpoint, we get to understand your word and then be empowered to go live out what your word calls us to. God, we thank you that as we seek to do this in the world, your word also strengthens us to, to do it as a model for those who may not know you. We know that according to this passage, one of the, the, the reasons you've calling and commissioning your people to be a holy people is so that the world around us would know what holiness looks like. And so, God, I pray this morning that as we take time to study this passage, that not only would our conviction of this grow, but our willingness, our, our zeal uh, to go and do exactly what it calls us to would grow. Give us grace, Father, to understand, comprehend, be encouraged, be convicted, and then to go live according to your word for the sake of your glory. And Father, I also pray for personal help. I stand as a preacher who's human, with human insufficiencies, human inadequacies. God, I plead for your help. Would you make up for the many ways that I'm insufficient? Would you give grace to make up for my inadequacy, Lord? Would you give me a clarity in my thoughts, a clarity in my speech, an unction, Father, the ability to preach your word in a way that pierces the hearts of your people today? God, I pray that you would help me to worship you, and that my worship from this place would, would be contagious to those who I preach to, why we all leave this place worshiping because of what your word lays out for us. I need you, God. And so I pray and ask that you would give the sufficient grace that you know I need. That's for your glory, with dependence upon your Holy Spirit, 
and in the name of your son that I both preach and pray. Amen. I just finished preaching through this book of Titus for our church. And some of the contextual elements I try to make clear for our people each week is that the book of Titus is written as a letter from a man named Paul to a younger man named Titus. Uh, Titus was a pastor on his island known as Crete, and the apostle Paul was a mentor to him in the ministry, and therefore Paul writes this letter to Titus to help him to kind of address some of the problems that were threatening the churches on this island where he was pastoring. And I told them as we looked at chapters 1 and 2 in particular, uh, that one of the major threats to the church in Crete was that there were false teachers teaching false doctrine and leading the people of God astray. They were these religious hypocrites who were teaching the people that they needed to to be working and trying to earn righteousness and earn salvation through their own works and good deeds instead of having faith in Jesus and his works for their salvation. And so Paul writes to Titus in this letter that he needed to do the opposite of what the lying hypocrites were doing. In chapter 1, Paul told Titus that he needed to rebuke those hypocrites and to appoint more faithful pastors who would do the same. And then here in verse 1 of chapter 2, we see that Paul's focus slightly changes. And it's no longer on the hypocrites and their false teaching as much, but he shifts his focus to Titus and what his true teaching should be like. And so he says, you, Titus, you, in in contrast to those false teachers, you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Uh, Paul essentially tells Titus here that he needed to teach and model how gospel traits flow from gospel truth when this truth is embraced by gospel people. You see, the false teachers had it wrong. Like, like holy living doesn't come from rituals and routines and religious activity alone. No, friends, holy living, it flows from a heart that has been impacted by the holy truth of the gospel. And so Titus needed to be preaching and and teaching and modeling how gospel traits flow from gospel truth as a mark of those who are truly gospel people. This first trait that should mark God's people, as Paul makes clear in the letter, is that we should live holy lives. The first gospel trait is that we should live holy lives. In verse 1, Paul tells Titus that he needed to teach and proclaim in the churches uh, things that were consistent with sound teaching. That sounds somewhat convoluted. A simpler way of putting this would be to say that Titus needed to promote lifestyles that reflected the true teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He needed to kind of help these people see that their disciplines were to be an outworking of their doctrines. Their their behaviors were to flow from their beliefs. And Paul, being the, the faithful mentor that he is, he tells Titus, which means that through God's word, he's telling us today... He tells us what these disciplines and behaviors should be like. When he speaks of older men in verse 2, he says that holy living looks like having self-control and being respectable, having God-given sensibility about yourself, and then being sound in your faith, love, and endurance. So to my brothers in the room, would you say that your life is marked by these gospel traits? You see, friends, this here is a proof that we don't just study God's Word in order to know more stuff. Like, if the Bible is a textbook, it's both a textbook and a how-to manual at the same time. These verses are calling us to specific action, not just special knowledge. And so if you're a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, friends, you study God's Word not just to know more stuff, but so that your life will be different. Like, you study God's Word so so that as you take in the truth of God's Word, you'll be sanctified and transformed to be more of what Paul says God's people should be in this passage. As followers of Christ, friends, we're not called to, to merely get together each week and, and kind of play church. Like, no, 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 no. We're a group of people who are called to live as the church. We've been transformed by the gospel, and we live according to the Bible that holds out this gospel truth for us in order to showcase its transformative power. And so, brothers, ask yourselves, are you the kind of man 
who's able to, uh, to maintain composure and to control yourself when, when it gets difficult for you to? Are you the kind of man who people respect because of what they see in your life? Are you the kind of man whose mind is able to make sense of things because you live with God-given wisdom? Are you the kind of man whose faith and love for God and others and spiritual endurance is able to stand when tests come to shake it? Paul says that this is what upstanding men in the church are to be like. And hear me on this. I didn't come to Baltimore on some kind of high horse this morning. Like, I know that all of us who are honest with ourselves, got to be honest, that we read this list and we see the places we fall short. But the thing we got to do in a lot of our shortcomings, friends, according to what Paul says in this passage, is to take in more of God's Word so that we become more of what God's Word says we should be. And so let this be an encouragement to you today. You are expected to be the things listed in these verses, but you're not expected to be these things by your own strength. You're expected to be them through the strength that the sound teaching of the gospel gives you when you take heed to it. And the same goes for my sisters in the room. According to verse 3, mature women in the church are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not excessive in the amount of alcohol that they drink. And I think it's probably good to say here that that I believe Paul is, is, is kind of leaning into some of the specific temptations that men and women were facing during this day in Crete. But each of these traits he lists are generally good for all Christians to apply to themselves in whatever ways they can. And so the traits that that men should have, women should also seek to live out. And the traits that women should have, men should also seek to live out. So to to every Christian in the room, brother, sister, sibling in Christ, when you look at this list, would you say that your life is marked by the trait of reverence and behavior? Do you live with a clear love and respect and, and holy fear of the divine God? Are you marked by the trait of of avoiding slander? Do you gossip? Do you bend the truth, especially when talking about other people? Do you master your tongue and make sure the words that it utters are are, are words that that build up and create unity instead of tear down and create disunity? And then also, are you marked by the trait of being moderate with the amount of alcohol you consume? Uh, Paul's obviously talking about uh, um, excessive drinking here because he says it. But I think the call to, to control ourselves with alcohol can also be applied as a call to control ourselves with anything that we should limit or deny as a whole. Like I think Paul's aim here is, is, is and what he's trying to say here is that if something tempts us to consume it to the point of addiction or to the point that we lack self-control, by all means necessary, we should avoid being enslaved to those things, friends. Paul's telling us here that gospel people are marked by the gospel trait of living holy lives, and that looks like living with the behaviors we see in verses 2 and 3. But the gospel traits don't stop there. He says that we're also to be marked as people who teach holy lessons. So we should be people who teach holy lessons. Uh, You see, the next thing he says about the women is that they were to teach what is good. So uh, the older, more mature women were to teach and encourage the young, less mature women about what godliness looked like. And it's really important for us to kind of read this and and consider it rightly in context. Uh, Some of the specific characteristics that Paul kind of calls women to in these verses If they aren't applied like they should be, they can paint this unhealthy picture of women being inferior and limited in ways that don't please the Lord nor accurately represent his perception of women. So when Paul says that women should should love their husbands and their children, that they should be workers at home who, 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 who submit to their husbands, these verses are often abused to make it sound like a woman has no place in life and society if she isn't a stay at home mom. And so I want to be clear in saying this. In the immediate context that Paul wrote into, the place of women was limited to what they could do for a family. 
Like if they weren't wives or moms or young women who were preparing to be wives or moms, they didn't have much of a place in that society. But this, friends, was a product of the culture and context of that day, not a product of limitations that God himself would place on women. Like you don't have to look far into the ministry of Jesus himself to see that, that he modeled respect and affirmation of and, and ministry alongside women who were single and had no children. And so women clearly have a place outside of being housewives. Like Paul's point in these verses isn't to say that in order for a woman to be godly, they must be housewives. No, friends, Paul's saying that, that just like in every other sphere of life, if a Christian woman is a wife and mom, that the way she fulfills these roles should speak to her identity as a Christian first. So though society says that wives can disrespect and, and challenge their husband's leadership, God's design for marriage says that a wife submitting to a godly husband is actually a beautiful thing. Though society says that a mom should neglect her kids and view them as a burden, God's design is that a mama cares for her kids and she nurtures them with love. Though society says that that stay-at-home moms have an excuse to be lazy and idle and to waste time at home, God's design is that the the time at home for a Christian homemaker is a time of work and labor to make her home an environment where godliness can flourish and godly kids can be raised. And so hear me, sisters. I don't think Paul's main point is that women have no place if they aren't homemakers. There are many other characteristics here that you can embody outside the home. I think Paul's point is that whatever you do, like whether you stay at home and take care of babies, whether you're a working mama, whether you're a single woman with no kids, whether you're a single mama with kids, whether you're a wife with no kids, you might be a grandmama or a sister or an auntie who's taking care of other folks' kids. Whatever you do, Paul's saying, you need to do it in the way of godliness, and you also need to teach less mature sisters how to do it in the way of godliness. He's saying that women are to be faithful wives and moms if they have husbands and children. But he says that they're also to be self-controlled and pure and kind and they're to teach one another what all of this looks like. And so if you don't necessarily fit these categories of wife, mama, or caretaker at home, consider the other things that Paul says and then give yourself wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly, sisters, not only to living these things out, but to living them out while you mentor and teach other sisters how to live them out alongside you. Because catch this. This is actually reinforcement that women do have a place that men can't feel. And when it comes to, to being a godly woman, the best people to teach what this looks like are other, more mature, godly women. This is something that a man could never be. And so these verses, friends, are showing us a beautiful picture of a church that's active in discipleship. You've got women discipling and teaching other women, and you've got men discipling and teaching other men. And as a result, Younger, less mature men and women are growing to be more consistent in godliness and good works. Because the people of the church need to be investing in one another and teaching one another these holy lessons about life so that we might present one another, Colossians 1.28, mature in Christ. And so build up and encourage one another in godliness, God, and church. Uh, Seek to be a church where this is the norm, because according to Paul, this is one of the gospel traits that marks gospel people. They live holy lives, they teach one another holy lessons, and then by doing all of this, they will therefore be defending a holy legacy. We're called to defend the holy legacy. You may have noticed that there's a repeated phrase Paul uses here in this part of the passage. It's the phrase, so that. And it's not just in this chapter that Paul repeats this phrase. A few times in other chapters, the phrase, so that, is used repeatedly. With this repetition of this phrase, so that, Paul's doing the church in Crete a favor. Like, as he issues this call for their holiness, he, at the same time, gives them purpose statements for their holiness. So each time Paul kind of uses this phrase so that he's giving the people a purpose for their holy behavior that he's calling them to. And each time he tells them the purpose, notice it ends up pointing to 
to how their holiness provides a defense against the wrongful accusations that people try to make against God, his word, and his people. He says, mature women, teach and model what godliness is so that you may encourage the younger women to follow suit and so that y'all together will prevent God's word from being slandered, verse 5. And then he says to Titus that he and other mature men should encourage younger men to be godly in all things and to teach them the true gospel in a way that's sound beyond reproach so that anyone who tries to oppose the people of God will be ashamed when they can't find a problem with the message nor those who live by it. And then he says to slaves in verse 9. And now, uh, slavery here doesn't mean what, what we may think of when we hear the word slavery. Like, we may picture the, the chattel slavery that happened in America uh, a couple hundred years ago. Uh, this word slave here, though, is the word uh, bond servant. It's, it's essentially a kind of indentured servanthood. In their society, this was a kind of, of employment. It meant that you worked for someone who you, who, who you served and you waited on at all times, but it wasn't the same as the kind of uh, identity-snatching, abusive, dehumanizing cruelty that chattel slavery was. But Paul tells those who were bond servants to submit to their masters or their bosses and everything. He's essentially saying that, that they should be good employees and not be disrespectful, but be faithful and hardworking as a sign of godliness. The reason Paul gives them is an echo of the other so that statements we've already looked at. He says, be faithful in the workplace so that you might adorn the teaching of God, our Savior. He's saying, don't be on the job slacking, like, like don't disrespect your boss. Be faithful in the workplace because your faithfulness at work says something about the faithfulness of your God and his faithful work inside of you through his gospel. And so faithfulness adorns the gospel teaching, Paul says. Some of y'all may have heard about the, uh, the British uh, coronation ceremony that happened a few weeks ago. It's a ceremony where uh, the British crowned their new king or queen. Uh, they crowned a new king a few weeks ago. It was all over the internet, broadcast all over TV, all over the world. If you watched it or saw pictures from it, then you know that one of the most fascinating things about that whole ceremony is all of the kind of, of royal uh, 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 um, medallions and, and, and regalia and all this stuff that they bring to the ceremony to kind of showcase the royal riches. I mean, the whole room, friends, the whole room is decked out in shiny jewels and, and fabrics and these precious rocks and stones that are worth more than the house I got at home. Like the diamonds and stuff are everywhere in this coronation ceremony. And all of the stuff in the room in itself is fascinating. But if you watch the coronation ceremony, then you know that in the middle of the room sits the throne. And on the throne will sit the one who's to be crowned as king or queen. And they really, really swagged them up. <laughs> I was looking, looking stuff up the other day so I could try to make this point in my sermon at Pioneer, and I was blown away by what I found. Uh, they got all kinds of, of royal ornaments and things and, 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 and just stuff that the king or queen holds and, 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 and does different things with as they're being crowned. Uh, one in particular is known as the, the sovereign scepter. Uh, it's this, this, this royal stick <laughs> that the king or queen holds at some point in the ceremony. And attached to this royal stick is this thing called the Cullinan One Diamond. Uh, some of y'all may have never heard of the Cullinan One Diamond. That's okay. I hadn't heard of it before I Googled this stuff to, to make the point of the sermon. Um, but but, but the, the, the monarch is, is holding this stick. Attached to it is the Cullinan One Diamond. And they say that this, this diamond, on record, is the largest diamond ever to be discovered in history. Ever. Like they say, it's estimated to be worth about $400 million. And the monarch, during this ceremony, sits there with the Cullinan One Diamond, the, the $400 million diamond just attached to a stick, and they hold it. $400 million on a stick for the ceremony. If that's not enough, then consider that there's also the sovereign's orb. Uh, it's this orb. Uh, 
I guess it's a fancy way of saying circle. Um, but the monarch holds it at a different point in the ceremony, and, and it's placed in their right hand to, to kind of showcase that they uh, get their power and, and, and wisdom for leadership from God. But it's this little golden ball that they hold in their hands. It's got all kinds of rubies and sapphires and, and pearls attached to it, and even it's worth about $300,000. I'm not done yet, because there's also the two, not one, but two different crowns that they use in the ceremony. Uh, there's the imperial state crown. It's got 2,868 different diamonds on it. And not, not like this, this, this crown has got this jewel called the, the Black Prince's Ruby. Like whatever the, the Black Prince's Ruby is, it's mounted to the crown, and it too is worth an absurd amount of millions of dollars. But that's still not it, because there's also the St. Edward's crown. Now this thing has is, is, got a frame that's made of solid gold. Like it's got all kinds of, of rubies and sapphires and stuff attached to it too, but the frame is solid gold. And they say the, the, the crown in itself weighs about uh, five pounds. And so that's almost three pounds of solid gold just to sit on somebody's head. This is the coronation ceremony in Britain. But I think the royal family, friends, has, I think they got a little something figured out. They got these multi-million dollars worth of jewels that they place exclusively on the one person. But I think they got something figured out by doing this. You see, I think the reason they probably do this is because when you walk into the room, like, like when you walk into the ceremony room, everything that your eyes touch, everything that you can lay eyes on, the, the curtains, the carpet, the, the, the wooden furniture and pews, everything you see is going to be polished and nice and pristine and beautiful. But it's going to be the St. Edward's crown, the Black Prince's ruby, that royal orb, orb with, with all of its jewels, and the royal scepter with that cut on the diamond. Like those are the things in a room full of beautiful things. Those are the things that your eyes are going to be drawn to. In this room full of beautiful stuff, it's these exclusive things that your eyes are going to be drawn to. And, and the reason they reserve all of this exclusively for the monarch is because even though the monarch is already understood to be the most important person in the room, they use these jewels to adorn that person. Catch this, because the adorning jewels will make sure that everybody's eyes are fixed on them. Lord and church, don't you know, friends, that, that Paul says here in chapter, Titus chapter 2 that the reason you need to live with these holy gospel traits is because you too have a holy king that you get to adorn. He's saying, friends, that, that you need to be holy in the likes of a cutting and diamond so that people will look at the king upon whose scepter you sit. He's saying to let your holiness shine beautifully like the black prince's ruby so that eyes are drawn to the king who wears you like a crown. He's saying, friends, glisten with godliness so that the world can't take their eyes off the king who holds you like an orb. He's saying, friends, let your life adorn God and the truth of his gospel. He's saying that we got a legacy to protect. It's the legacy of the true word that comes from the true God. And when we live lives that are consistent with what this word teaches, we adorn it and we lead people's eyes to the one who is the source of it. Adorn the teaching of God. Protect the legacy of God's word. Prevent opponents from slandering God's word and God's people, Paul says. That's the third gospel trait that marks us as gospel people. We live holy lives, we teach holy lessons, and we defend the holy legacy. And the reason, Paul says... The reason we live with these traits is because grace has appeared and glory will appear. Uh, Paul says in verse 11 that we do this stuff because grace has appeared and glory will appear. Now, now this grace and glory that Paul talks about here, they're both a kind of, kind of indirect reference to Jesus. We're told in, in John chapter 1 that we're recipients of grace and that this grace has come through Jesus Christ. And then we know from Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus the Son is the radiance of God's glory. So, so when Paul mentions both grace and glory here, he's referring to the grace and glory that Jesus himself is the embodiment of. 
what, he getting at, what he's getting at here is that Jesus, as an extension of grace and a display of glory, has come and he is coming. He's come one time with the grace of salvation, and he's promised, friends, that he's coming a second time with the glory of heaven. And therefore, the people who are followers of Jesus live in light of these things being true. Uh, Paul's now showing us that while gospel traits are the marks of gospel people, gospel truth is the fuel for gospel people. And the way we get this fuel, Garden Church, like the way we, we live, it, be, uh, being invigorated to, to, to live out these gospel truths, Paul says, is by heeding the grace that has appeared and waiting for the glory that will appear. And so if I can just kind of sum up the point that Paul's making here, I simply say that he's telling us that as the people of God, we're both looking at Jesus and we're waiting to see Jesus. Can you look at your neighbor and say, that, say we're looking? I say, but we're waiting to see. In Hebrews 9, 26 to 28, friends, we are looking at the one who has appeared one time for the removal of sin, yet will appear a second time to bring full salvation to those who are waiting on him. We're looking, yet we're waiting to see. In Hebrews 10, 36 kind of way, Joe, we, we, we Christians are looking to Jesus, our Lord and Savior, but we still need endurance while we wait for him so that we can live according to God's will now and then receive what has been promised to us. We're looking, yet waiting to see. In a Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 kind of way, we, we, we're running this race that lies before us. We're keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the source of our faith, yet we're awaiting the day that he will perfect our faith. We are looking, yet we're waiting to see church. In a 2 Peter 1, verse 3 kind of way, we, we all have, we have everything we need for life and godliness, like through knowledge of our Savior who has called us by his own glory and goodness. We've got it all. But in a verse 11 kind of way, we're waiting on the kingdom to be provided for us in full. We're looking, but waiting to see. In a 2 Peter 1.19 kind of way, we have a lamp that shines in the darkness of the world. We're waiting for the day to dawn. We're, we're waiting for the bright morning star to forever rise. Church, we're looking at Jesus, yet we're waiting to see. In a Mark 8.22-26 kind of way, we're like the man who Jesus gave sight to, but who could only see with a blur at first. We're looking, yet we're still waiting to see. And here's why this is good news for you today, Garden Church. Because the thing you're looking at, like the thing that you can already see, according to this passage, is grace. It's grace that has made purification for your sins. It's, it's grace that offers you a love like no other. It's grace that grants hope when all else seems hopeless. It's grace that makes your rights wrong. Friends, you're looking at grace that has granted you salvation. But don't you know the news gets gooder? Because the glory that you're waiting to look at is glory that will usher you into the presence of God. It's glory that will make the skies part and the angels shout. It's glory that will do away with the sun and moon and provide light like no other. It's glory, friends, that will make the trumpets blast. And it's glory that will make your joy forever last. It's glory that will wipe every tear, remove every sorrow, lift every burden, and resolve all problems. I'm talking about the glory of our Savior, church. We're looking at grace, and yet we're waiting to see glory. Church, don't you know that we are a people who are looking, and yet we're still waiting to see. Paul says that when Jesus initially appeared with grace, he brought salvation and instruction for us. This, so this grace that, is, that has pulled us out of darkness and into the marvelous light of our Lord, it's the same grace that teaches us how to live as reflections of that light in the world. Jesus, as grace to us, is instructive for us about denying godless things and denying the lusts of the world. He's instructive for us about living a sensible, righteous, and godly life. Friends, this is this this is the sound teaching that Paul is talking about. It's the teaching about who Jesus is, because the teaching about who Christ is instructs us about who we are to be. And so I don't know who needs to hear this today, but I came all the way from Rock Hill, South Carolina, to Baltimore, Maryland, just to say this to you. If you're at a place of struggling with sin, struggling to choose holiness, 
feeling like it's impossible to live righteously, the resolution is not for you to rely on your own strength. No, beloved, the resolution is for you to feast your eyes on Jesus. Stare at Christ more and more and more, and then let your love for him be fuel for your life for him. He's a savior, friends, who's good for both salvation and sanctification. He's good to pardon us from sin and then give us power over sin. So look to Jesus and let his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and promise return be instructed for you. Grace has appeared and glory will appear. We're looking, yet we're also waiting to see. In verse 14, Paul tells us what this gracious, glorious Savior who we look at and wait on has done for us. He says that he gave himself for us uh, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to know that this verse right here, like this verse, this is the reason you need to join us in looking to and waiting on Christ Jesus. You are in need of cleansing from sin and in, cleansing, in need of cleansing from lawlessness and immorality and wrongdoing. You ain't going to find that nowhere else outside of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. If you just happen to think that you found it, you need to know that what you found is fake. Every other religion, every other false sense of fulfillment in this world, like everything that this life tries to offer you, it demands that you give yourself for it. But notice, friends, that in this verse, Christ Jesus, he gave himself for us. <laughs> You can't cleanse yourself from the sin that you need to be cleansed from. You can't give yourself the joy that your heart and soul lacks, friends. You need somebody else to do that for you. And while everything else in life, like everything else demands that you do something in order to get what you need, the Christian gospel tells us that Jesus did something to give you what you need. It's the glorious truth of our gospel church. He gave himself for us on a cross 2,000 years ago. He died in our place to give us salvation, and then he rose from the grave to give us new life. And according to verse 14, when we believe this with faith, when we believe this with repentance and devotion to Christ as our Lord, we become his and he becomes ours. Paul says he gave himself for us. So I'm going to close with this right here. Jesus gave himself for us. And if you take that last clause of verse 14, you see that in becoming his, we get to be a people who also give. It says that we become a people who belong to him, and we become a people who are eager to do good works. Uh, these are the good works that y'all are already doing, God, in church. Establishing yourself in a community, living with godliness, proclaiming the gospel, and serving and meeting needs to soften hearts to this gospel. I'm so encouraged by this church. Everything I see, everything I hear from Pastor Joel, it constantly encourages me. So press on, God, in church. These are the good works that show the world around us a picture of our good God. Paul writes to these churches in Crete. They were living in a society that was filled with sin and waywardness. And they, as God's people, needed to contrast that society by reflecting the better ways of their Savior. Garden Church, you already know about the sin and waywardness that's in our day and in our society. But praise God that he's given you this new building to more permanently plant you as an ongoing gospel witness in this community. My prayer for y'all's church in this season is that as you settle into this new place, you'd be all the more eager to do the good works and to heed the good news that showcases the glory of our God. Gospel people are marked by gospel traits which flow from gospel truth. Let's pray for God to help us to be this kind of people. Heavenly Father, we thank you that what we don't have strength to do in ourselves, you grant us strength to do. We thank you, Lord, that 
when you called us as children of yours, and when you called us as a people who are to be light set upon a hill, you didn't just call us, but you gave us your word as instruction, and you give us your spirit as power. God, I pray that we lean into the truth of your word, that we rely wholly on your spirit to be what you intend for us to do in these lives that you call us to live. We love you. We're grateful for you. We're grateful for your son and what his death and resurrection has made possible for us for all of eternity. And so it is in his matchless holy name that we pray. Amen.